Thank you, Elderi, for presiding worship. And let's continue to worship our Lord with the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 22, and read from verses, uh, verse 22 through to verse 30, and I'll continue uh, from 23, verse 1 to 11. If you have your Bible with you, can you please turn to that? Otherwise, uh, if you are here visiting us uh, for the first time, you can also refer to the uh, screen. All right. So if you're there, most of you are there. Good. Acts chapter 22, verse 22. I read. After this word, they would listen to him. And they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he shall not be allowed to leave. And as they shouted, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should examine by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And they stretched him out. For the weeps, Paul said to the centurion who was by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, Why, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, hey, Are you a Roman citizen. And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason, was accused by the Jews. He unbound him and commanded the chief priests, all the council meet, and he brought Paul down and sat before them. Chapter 23, verse 1. And looking handily at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Elias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you. You whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you reveal God's high priest? But Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 6. And when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he has said this, 
a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and exactly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Verse nine. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contently and contended sharply. We find nothing within, wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension came violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn into pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks, or bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And this is the word of God. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination of the word that we might be instructed. Let's pray. Oh dear Heavenly Father, oh God, oh gracious Lord, that you have given us the word, not just to hear, Lord, but to obey you. Not just to obey you, Lord, but to do exactly, Lord, what you will. So may the Holy Spirit this morning impress upon us what your will is for us, that we may obey and do what is required. More so, Lord, we do it by the motivation of Christ, who has perfectly obeyed, perfectly done what is necessary, for our salvation. So help me, Lord, and help the congregation here, Lord, to continuously lay hold of what is before us, the gospel, the truth given to us and to save us. So help me, Lord, in Christ's name, I do pray. Amen. Courage. No quality is such a paradox and almost contradiction in terms. Now, G.K. Chesterton, uh, he's a prolific uh, English writer as well as philosopher, I would say also a layman theologian. He best illustrated this and wrote, he can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by en enemies, if he is to cut his way out, he needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling on to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and he will not escape. The Apostle Paul will be that soldier, but with a slight twist of courage. He remained silent for some time while the Jewish mob dragged him out from the temple to a Roman army officer who is known as the, tri uh, the tribune. Right? Then the mob was seeking to kill Paul with the help of the Romans. But the tribune didn't push to put him to death because uh, of the mob's demand. The officer 
wanted to find out about two things. First, who was Paul? Second, what was the real reason the Jews wanted his uh, wanted him dead? All right. So Paul would most likely be praying before he broke his silence with the Roman officer and the crowd. He was allowed to speak and prove his identity as a Christian with a Jewish heritage in chapter 22. And nearing the end of the chapter, he got to the point of telling them that he had a new identity in Jesus and he must obey him. Just as Jesus Christ, the Son, obeyed his heavenly Father. Jesus obeyed Jesus obeyed to preach the good news to the Jews first. And Paul putting himself into the shoes of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, he courageously said that Christ has appointed him with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul said that Christ, and, and when Paul said that, uh, Christ told him that in a vision while he was in a Jewish temple, Oh, now hold on a second here, right? Wouldn't the Jews suppose that the heavenly vision sending Paul to the Gentiles in a temple? That was totally unthinkable. In fact, it was a blasphemous idea. The Jews would not be able to take it. The moment Paul uttered the word Gentiles and the temple together, these two things together, it would sound like thunder to them. To their ears, breaking their eardrums. It echoed in their head, resounding, oh, this cannot be. And it burned in their hearts as Jews. This is absolutely preposterous. If the Jews would accept what Paul said, they fear that he will bring, that he will bring down their power structure, and especially when he exposed their religious hypocrisy. Now, we will do well to note that the book of Acts was written to flow like a, a historical account, but it's not written just to highlight the adventures of the apostles, Peter, uh, you know, Paul, the disciples, or even Dr. Luke himself who wrote this book. There are theological truths and themes interweaved to instruct and to encourage the church. One such theme and instruction for the church is to take courage to weakness. In the last verse of our text, chapter 23, verse 11, when Jesus instructed Paul to take courage, in the Greek language, it was more like, uh, it was more like encouraging him to keep up, keep up with the courage. All right? To take courage implies that Paul, the church, and the Christians would face some challenging situations and even life-threatening ones. As such, the big idea of the sermon today is take courage to testify the gospel of Jesus. Now, to testify is, is, uh, is to give evidence as a weakness. So in our text today, Paul was facing three challenging situations that would need tremendous courage. Again, I say with a twist. What kind of courage would Paul have to face the abusive powers, to face the hypocrisy, and to face his traumas almost over and over again? In other words, what are the expressions of 
courage did Paul have? Likewise, then for uh, the question before us is, what kind of courage should we have in the face of our own trouble? Now, the text of the sermon suggests there are three kinds of courage that we could have. First, the empowering courage. Second, the rebuking courage. And third, the perceiving courage. If you would like, then you can compress them to ERP. Not that I purposely did it. It just happened to me. All right? The empowering courage, the rebuking courage, and the perceiving courage. Now, we will dive into the text to now take hold of the first kind of courage, the empowering courage with the authority of God. From chapter 22, verses 22 through 30, Paul was facing a potential abuse of power. Specifically, the military power of the Roman commanding officer and his army. The commanding officer identified himself as Claudia Lysias in chapter 23, verse 26. He was a commander of probably more than a thousand Roman soldiers or more. Right? Lysias ordered Paul to flock when he saw the Jews were in a, 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 a commotion and a rage after Paul spoke to them in Aramaic, in the Hebrew language. Now, basically, he don't know what went on, all right, because he don't understand Aramaic. But he just knew that there was a huge commotion. Though it may not be uncommon for the Roman army to beat up people for violating their civil law, Lysias was clearly going to abuse his power to flog Paul without even knowing, without even knowing his offense and what they spoke about. So Roman flogging was not just caning, by the way. It's not just, ah, oh, you know, like that. Huh? So children, huh? it's not just caning, just, you know, it's not like that. All right. Flogging, it was a ripping of the flesh. It means it's, all right, scratch, claw. Uh, it's almost like cats, right? Because the, the, the flogging instrument is, is, a, is a stick with the end of many nails or whatever they can put on uh, metals that are meant to tear the flesh and even to some extent break bones or breaking the bones. Paul will have gone through the same treatment that the Lord Jesus Christ went through before he was hung on the cross. So similar to the case of Jesus' trial, all the Romans knew was that the Jews rejected Paul's claim. But in the case of Paul, the Jews denounced him as a Jew, uh, their own people in chapter 22, verse 22. When they saw, uh, when they say, away with such a fellow from the earth. To be sure that the Romans and Paul got their message of total disapproval what did they do? They were throwing their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air. If you can imagine that, right? Yeah, like a almost like a party like that, but it's not. All right, as gestures of rage, uh, cutting him off completely from any relationship with them. The actions of these Jews rejecting Paul would have been uh, emboldened Lysias, the commander, and his soldiers to abuse Paul because now Paul was apparently a nobody with no protection from any authority at all. 
But before Paul was about to be flogged, he took courage to question the Roman centurion officer. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? That is to say that Paul was appealing to the legal authority of Rome to protect him as a Roman citizen. But in fact, he was taking courage from knowing that God has instituted all the existing governing authorities. Because Paul firmly and affirmed his belief in a letter he wrote later in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. He said this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, all governing authorities are borrowed power or have borrowed power from God. The Old Testament gave much evidence of God had and will have the final say of the rise and fall of all governing authorities. Now, with that in mind, we'll do well to note that Paul's question to the centurion was not to disempower the centurion's authority as an army officer. On the contrary, Paul was empowering him to do the right thing with his military authority. In other words, Paul took the courage to empower a person who was about to abuse him. You see, there is a very different courage from what we used to know. So even isn't Paul's spirit actually gracious? In contrast, Lysias, the commanding officer, had a totally different spirit when he took the courage to actually ask Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? In chapter 22, verse 7, he asked that question which, with much cynicism, right? He was very cynical about it when he stated to Paul that he bought his Roman citizenship with a large sum. In fact, both his question and then the statement of Roman citizenship were totally designed to put two thumbs down on Paul to disempower him altogether. You see, but Lysias was exercising again a different courage, a disempowering courage. Similarly, that's our current world understanding of courage. Our world applauds and calls people brave to question, to challenge, to disempower any authorities or any form of authorities. The government, the bosses, the parents, the fathers, and even the church leaders. Why? The world now sees all forms of authority through the lenses of oppression and systemic victimization. Now, definitely, there is no perfect governing authority on earth. I'm also not denying that there are systemic issues in the world. But I do wonder if they're all beyond the control of individuals. Because the Apostle Paul wrestled with the same over here when he says in Ephesians chapter 6, and that's what he said here. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As such, we also ought to recognize that God has instituted governing authorities to restrain evil and to promote order in a society, in a family, marriage, and the church as fleshed out in the Bible in Romans chapter 13. You can read Romans chapter 13 yourself, but it's all in there. Now, I totally, again, and absolutely agree that we should have the courage. Again, I say we should have the courage to raise questions to the authorities for the welfare of the public and for one another. However, however, before we ask any question and put our hand, hey, I want to say this. We need to ask, what kind of courage are we having? Is it a disempowering courage like Lysias or an empowering courage like Paul? One acts out of personal insecurity and the other is totally secured in God. To take courage implies that we are facing some challenging situations that may cause us to shrink back and even be afraid. But if we are not challenged at all, especially for the purposes of God, then we should ask, what are we doing with our lives? Now, if we are always challenging others, then shouldn't we also ask, why are we always questioning? Again, I say, questioning is not bad. It's just what kind of attitude one is questioning. And what kind of courage is there? Now back to the text. Though Paul questioned to appeal for protection from the Roman government as a citizen, he was, in fact, appealing to God himself. All right? This is what is behind his mind. It's not that he's a supporter of Roman government. Uh, I won't go further than that, but just to know that he appeals to God. Now, in spite of his appeal, Lysias, the commander, was questioning him with total dis this total suspicion just to disempower Paul. He was suggesting to Paul that oh, Paul looked nothing, looked nothing at this moment like a noble or a well-to-do Roman citizen. Now that we have established that in the last sermon, in the last chapter, or rather, you know, in the last sermon, again, we'll do well to note that Lysias taught that Paul was a barbaric rebel from the wilderness, you know, an Egyptian that was, uh, you know, came to uh, find trouble in Jerusalem and then went out there in the wilderness at the very last part of chapter 21. And when Lysias thought that he up Paul, you know, he said, I bought this with a large sum, no. Hey man, what do you have? Paul answered, I am a citizen by birth. Paul was saying, like saying, I'm a born Singaporean to a permanent resident in Singapore, okay? This is the weight. I'm not saying the discrepancy or anything like that. I'm just saying the weight of it. Now, surely the moment the Roman soldiers realized that Paul was a legit Roman citizen because he understood his legal rights, his potential abusers backed off and became afraid. 
became afraid out of their insecurity. Again, it wasn't Paul's intention to cause fear in them because he took the courage to raise, raise his question to empower the centurion first, and hopefully Lysias will do the same. Now, with this intention, finally the Roman commander was reminded of his empowered role. He exercised his lawful authority over the entire situation. Consequently, in verse 30, he ordered to unchain, unbound Paul. At the same time, he ordered to gather the leaders of the Jews to meet him and to discern the real reason why the Jews were accusing him. You see, Paul asked the question so that to help the authorities to do the right thing. Okay, That was his heartbeat. It's a very different courage from either the centurion or even the Lysias. At the gathering in chapter 23, verse 1, Paul stared at them with empowering courage. He begins his appeal addressing them as brothers in the hope that the authority of the Jews would respond lawfully as the Roman soldiers did. Ironically, it was not the Romans that did the first strike to lay hands lay their hands on Paul. In fact, it was their Jewish brothers who smacked him in the face, right in the mouth, just to shut him up. According to Paul, and accordingly, Paul has to take a very different kind of courage in response to the Jews. The rebuking courage with the words of God. From verses 1 through 5, we see Paul took the courage to rebuke high priest Ananias. He called out Ananias and his followers as whitewash wall because they are violating the very moral law and order they were supposed to uphold. The expression, the whitewash wall, was used by the prophet Ezekiel all right, to denounce the false prophets of his day who were misleading God's people. Most likely, Paul was pointing to them the Mosaic law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. You see, Lysias, nothing of that. He looked down on Paul and thought he was a nobody. Okay? Paul accuses and analyzes. And, and, uh, the high priest Ananias of not adhering to the principle of impartiality and Ananias and those who hit him had in fact forfeited themselves as the authority by violating God's word directly. In that case, Paul was denouncing Ananias and those who strike him by defining them as whitewash. Right? So defining them as whitewash to the Jews is something like Someone saying now, like, you are an absolute fake. Right? That's how he's saying it now. And when those who stood by Ananias saying, would you revile God's high priest? Paul replied that he didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. 
Over here, some commentators viewed that Paul was being sarcastic. And some other commentators thought that he truly couldn't tell as he couldn't see Ananias somehow. All right? I would appeal to you, brothers, fathers, and mothers, and sisters, if you're relying on a single commentary to judge what I'm about to say, then you might want to think again. I would say neither. Based on the tone in the Greek language of the Bible, comparing that with the words and phrases constructed when Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you going to judge me according to the law? Paul was indeed, truly indeed, invoking them, in fact, a flashback of what Christ Jesus told them years earlier in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus repeatedly warned them seven times, woe to you, specifically scribes of the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes of the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes of the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes of the Pharisees, and he went on for seven times. But if you must then insist that your commentary is right, either way, it doesn't change the fact that the high priest, Ananias, and his followers needed correction. They needed to hear Paul's rebuke according to Jesus' words as the ultimate high priest, not Ananias. How do we know this is the correct way to read our text from the redemptive history of Jesus Christ and the Old Testament? From Jesus' own words, in chapter 23, verse 11, he said this, For you have testified about the fact about me in Jerusalem. Now, what are the facts so far spoken by Paul? Does it not include his echoing of Jesus' words, you whitewashed wall, from Matthew chapter 23? That was also from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Now, notably, verses 6 through 11, some of the scribes, the Pharisees, did not respond positively to Paul's doctrinal correction. In fact, Paul was speaking the facts and truth in love, even for his enemies, that they may turn to Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is this, even while he is rebuking, he is trying to turn them back to Jesus Christ, giving them enough words so that they can remember what Christ said. Again, Paul took the rebuking courage to correct them with the law of God's word a second time from Exodus this time, chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. To point it out that, to point out, uh, to, point out to them that Ananias had clearly given up on the authority of God's word. Though Paul's word may seem harsh and pronouncing judgment on Ananias and his followers, he was merely confirming Jesus' warning and judgment against them. Woe to you! Woe to you, scribes of the Pharisees! We'll do well to note that Paul's intention again was not to tear them down. It was not to tear down the authority of the Jewish leaders, 
but again to correct them. He was pointing out to them that they would have given up the authority and the responsibility that God has given to them. Brothers and sisters, there will be a time when we need to take the courage to question, to empower one another. There will be other times that we will need to also take the courage to rebuke and correct one another with the word of Jesus, speaking the truth in love. Will we do to be faithful to the truth and the doctrines of God? Could we perceive both the situation and the doctrines of God together? Could we apply the truth to the situation to point one another to the gospel? The Apostle Paul has perceived well with the leading of the Holy Spirit when verse 6 says that, now when Paul perceived that one part were seducers and the other Pharisees, accordingly, right, he took the courage to speak the truth and the doctrine of God with his observation of the situation. Hence, the third kind of courage here, the perceiving courage. Paul was exercising his discernment with the analysis of the situation and the people that he was interacting with. A very shepherd, a very pastoral skill, actually good to have. It's like one of the skills that the army scouts right, and officers huh, that are trained to do in the battleground. They would produce a, what we call the situational report. Very long. Singaporean don't like to call it. situational report. Too long already. So what do we call them? We call seat wrap for short, right? Smooth and easy. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> okay, ask your husband, okay? Or ask your, 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 your friends, brothers, and brothers especially. To, it's called a seat wrap to analyze the situation and then to report and then to respond to the threat that they are facing. Paul was producing a seat wrap in his mind and he was perceiving, thinking on his feet what to do next in his battleground. He was clear that his objective was to, again, to testify Jesus to the people wherever, whenever, and whoever. For this reason, we should not read the text with the popular belief, and even in some, again, commentaries, that Paul was cowardly sowing discord among the Sadducees and the Pharisees in verses 6 and 7. He was not employing some tactics to divide and conquer, save himself. His eyes, rather, he had the perceiving courage. His eyes and speech were fixed on his single purpose to testify the very facts of Jesus Christ. How do we know that from our text? Firstly, he addressed them as brothers, as identification that he was one of them. Now, secondly, he was merely stating the doctrines that he believed as a Pharisee. And as a son of Pharisee, in fact, truly, Paul was taught, was taught in the doctrines of a human as a soul and God is the Spirit. Then by all means, he believes and testifies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because 
Jesus Christ is 100% human. At the same time, He's also 100% God. Beautiful. However, verse 8 states a different belief and doctrine. The seducers don't believe a person has a soul, uh, a person don't have a spirit, in fact, don't believe in spirit, and definitely no angels. And for this reason, they rejected the belief of Jesus Christ because that would imply that he has a soul, the body, and then return as a spirit. In other words, the real reason that Paul was on trial was not about him, but he was on trial because the Jews, uh, because the Jews was either believing or rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel truths, and the doctrines. When Paul shared his belief and doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that created a moment of reflection for some of the scribes of the Pharisees. They were the legal eagles, all right, what we call legal eagles, and experts of applying the word of God from the entire council of the Old Testament. They were from the entire and the whole of, of the Old Testament, they were able to derive what we call the doctrines of God for the Jews to act upon. They do so by systematically asking questions like about who is God and his purposes for the Jews and what the Jews ought to do. And the only way they could produce doctrines was to make connections in themes, in terms of themes and categories of the Old Testament and not just pick here and there and you know, just put verses out and say, this is what I believe. No, they systemize it. They connect all of them in order to bring out doctrines. The scribes of the Pharisees were, in fact, like the scholars that wrote the doctrines in the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's exactly what the scholars were doing. By the grace of God, some of the scribes are making the connection and they make the connections of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the doctrines of the Old Testament. In that case, they were convinced and strongly argued that they found nothing wrong with Paul. In other words, there were no contradictions in their doctrines and of what Paul testified of the gospel. And because of this, because of Paul's courage that is very different, the empowering courage, right, the rebuking courage, and the perceiving courage, that some of the scribes that Jesus Christ said, woe to you seven times, some of them would have been saved here. However, again, not everyone was convinced. Yet again, some of them turned so violent that the Roman army has to protect Paul from being torn apart. I'm not sure about you, but if I was Paul, whatever courage uh, that I had would have left me at that very point. And whatever I wanted to do was to help somebody, and then somebody then turned around, right, to harm and then kill me, that would have been just such a painful and traumatic encounter. Now, what if that someone is close to your heart? Like one of your family members, close friends, or even one of our church members. Then multiply that trauma, that heartbreak, 
by many encounters of the same. But even worse, each time the encounter is worse off than the last. This was what Paul was going through, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul then may not be physically torn apart in our text, but I bet you that his soul will have been ripped apart many times over and then put back together again like what? Humpty Dumpty. Right? Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Paul went through many of such traumas. And he was put back together again. Have you felt like that in the past or even recently? Back in our text, by this time, again, Paul was locked away in the dungeon, in the prison. His soul would have shattered into pieces, all alone, no friends, and no campfire. No warmth, all cold and dark in the night. Just him and the moonlight. He lowered his head, curled up like a ball, and then with flashbacks of his past mistakes against the traumas of all the, against all his old enemies, and now his memories of his mistake keep coming back at him like a vengeance. Then a familiar old enemy from his past comes and visits him at the jailhouse, standing beside him. The Lord, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. Take courage, Paul. Keep up the courage. Wouldn't Paul and grab hold of Jesus and indeed take hold of the divine courage? Christ Jesus is the perfect source and expression of courage. He had the perceiving courage to ask of his heavenly Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. He had the rebuking courage to correct the apostles, the disciples, the Jews, and the Roman soldiers on the way to the cross. And finally, he had the empowering courage to question the Roman soldiers to raise him up at the cross. Ironical, isn't it? Empowering courage was to let them bring him up to the cross. Dear church and friends, do you not perceive? Have you not been rebuked? Are you not empowered? Wouldn't your spirit grab hold of Jesus, grab hold of courage, and so testify and witness that Christ Jesus is true? He was dead and now alive in you and I. If that is true, then you may tell each other truly, take courage, take Jesus. This is the preach word of God. 